Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. We'll be in chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Now today, our access to knowledge, books, and answers really to nearly any question is unprecedented. And whether you see it as a good or bad thing, and maybe you do, one or the other, AI, artificial intelligence, has made this knowledge and the pursuit of knowledge even easier. Now that access to knowledge, though, isn't just out there. It's also at the tips of our fingertips as Christians. And as we say that, as we see that, for the most part, that is a good thing. You have access to countless resources now that can aid you in your study of Scripture in ways that believers of old absolutely would have pined over what took them hours upon hours in a moment through various Bible study softwares. You can pull up commentaries, you can pull up dictionaries, you can pull up maps, you can pull up variety of translations and more. And I would imagine that many of you likely have a Bible at home or even here right now or on your phones, and probably the truth is, if you've grown up in the church, you probably have both. Yet as we hear all that, there's two interesting sides to this. One, the access today to that biblical, historical, theological knowledge is there, but it's left untouched. So in other words... We don't avail ourselves of it. Or two, we do avail ourselves of it, but not as God has intended. We will fill our heads and our churches with knowledge while our hearts remain empty, our lives remain empty of the realities standing behind that knowledge, where we even use that knowledge without any real consideration of others. Now, in America, I think we're really deeply in danger of many of those things. Untouched access to that knowledge, filled heads but empty lives, and knowledge without love. And so the danger with a sermon like this one is that it can so often become less about discipleship, which is certainly Jesus' concern for every single one of us in this room. It can become less about discipleship. It can become less about transformation into the image of Christ and more about one thing. Teach me, tell me, fill my head But that's as far as I'm going to go with all of these things. Now, knowledge matters. There's no doubt about that. But it's not the soul of the matter. 
So as we come to Paul's words here this morning, we would be right to ask ourselves, what direction are we personally heading? As we'll see, it's not merely about what you know, but it's about letting the truths of God's word and the truths of the gospel lead us into greater gospel living. Lives that display the love of God in Christ Jesus towards the world and towards one another. So to see this, let's read here beginning with verse 1 this morning. May the Lord be with us and bless the reading and receiving of his word. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist." Now, in some ways, as we begin this chapter, we're coming to a change in direction. It's not a shift, not a total shift anyway, but it's a, it's a shift. So Paul, he hasn't left all that he's been saying behind here at this point. So the, crawl, the call of the cross is still there, and it's going strong. And as we've been walking along through these chapters, if you've been listening attentively, if you've been watching what Paul has been saying, you've heard the heartbeat of the cross there the whole time. So when Paul, he said back in chapter 1, verse 23 through 24, he said, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. When he said that, back in chapter 1, he meant it. And so it was that he applied that, the cross, to divisions. He applied that, the cross, to spiritual pride. He applied the cross to addressing sin and personal conflicts. He applied the cross to glorifying God in your body, in marriage, in singleness, and in all things. As we've been going through the forest of 1 Corinthians, it might be easy to lose sight of just how central the cross and the gospel has been to all of this. And this is part of Paul's first point here. 
on what we're really to know. On what we're really to know. So he begins, as he's talking about what we're to really know, with the cross still in view, as we'll see. He begins with that phrase there in verse 1, Now concerning food offered to idols. Now this isn't the first time that he's used that phrase there, and he used it a number of times so far, two other times, so he used it back in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. Also in chapter 7, verse 25, now concerning the betrothed. And then now here also, now concerning food offered to idols. So Paul, he is addressing various concerns the Corinthians were needing clarity on. And so he addresses just that, the issue of food offered to idols and knowledge that puffs up. Now, we won't resolve everything he has to say on this today. He'll say more on this all the way through to chapter 11. So, as we move forward, I'm not going to answer every single aspect of what Paul, where he's headed because he'll be addressing this all the way up until the end of chapter 10. And so as we come to these verses, though, we need to see that this was a big issue. In the Corinthians' day, idols were everywhere. I mean, food would be offered up to these idols regularly. Pagan temples would offer up parts of animals in sacrifice to their gods regularly. Also, at times, they would have these kind of pagan banquets in their temples, and some believers were going to these feasts. And then adding to all of that, if you just put yourself in the shoes of the Corinthians here, most of the food that you would buy in the marketplace would have come from that, from food offered to idols. So you can see how this would be an issue. All kinds of questions, right? How do you walk through a world like that? So questions like, is it okay to eat in pagan temples? Is that fine? To, is it okay to participate in pagan rituals as believers? Is it okay to eat the meat sold in the marketplace that came from these temples? And that really is your main source for meat. And more questions. What about for social occasions? As in, like, is it okay to eat in one of these temples? Or is it okay to eat with an unbeliever if they have meat offered to idols? So you're sitting down there at the table and they're like, yeah, this meat, you know it was offered up to an idol and here you are. So what are you going to do? Then, what about other believers as well? And how might all of this, eating this meat, eating in the temple, how might it then affect them? And so these were the kinds of questions that the Corinthians were wrestling with. Now, the closest question that we'll actually get to answering this morning is that last one. So you just have to wait for the answer for all the other ones until Paul gets to those verses. 
So if you don't remember what the last question I asked was, it's this one. What about other believers and how it might affect them? And so here, Paul is taking his first step towards addressing this issue. And as he does, he quotes from the Corinthians themselves. And you see it here in your verses. All those quotations, those he is saying, that's what you said. That's what you think. And so he quotes from them here and he says, quotes, all of us possess knowledge. But then he continues and kind of comments on that. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so he tells us what that knowledge is later in verses 4 through 6, which we'll get to here in a moment. So how believers know those idols really aren't anything at all. And so in view of that, they felt that they had the right to eat as they so pleased, even if it caused other believers to stumble. So in other words, they held that knowledge in a puffed up, prideful, run you over sort of way. You know, I like to Maybe think of this like a pufferfish sort of knowledge. Now, if you know pufferfish, or blowfish, as you probably more commonly recognize the name as, and I'm sure all of you know blowfish and pufferfish, and you probably have a pet blowfish at home as well, and you take it out every so often and pet it and feed it carrots. Probably not. But if you know blowfish, what happens as they inflate? Well, at least for some of those. They don't just inflate, but along with inflating, what happens? These dangerous, pointy spikes come out as they inflate as well. And you do not want to touch one of those. <laughs> that is no good for you. And this is what their knowledge was becoming. And the knowledge, though, in itself wasn't bad, but it was their use of it. As they got inflated and puffed up with this knowledge, as they implemented it, these spikes went out and just poked everyone. Now, I think that's a danger for us as well, to have a pufferfish sort of knowledge where knowledge really isn't utilized primarily for others' good, but it's a run-you-over sort of knowledge. The more you know, the more people you hurt. And so you say to yourself, you know, I know this, and so I'll just do it. And so the Corinthians then, they were using knowledge to say, I am free to do as I please. And so the danger for them and the danger for us is an empty Christianity, lacking of the most crucial thing. Knowledge like this can derange the gospel. You can know every, all the right things, and you can be living in heresy. It's not just about what you know that leads to heresy. It's what you do. Knowledge like this can lead to legalism, where you hold tight things, you bring rules to things, even to the most minute 
pieces and parts. Or in the case here, it can lead to antinomianism. I know this, so I am free to do whatever I want. To running over brothers and sisters in the Lord without thinking twice. And so what was lacking here? It was and is lacking of the love of Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. They think that they know, but they don't. They're lacking the most crucial thing. They're lacking the crucial ingredient of the cross of Christ, of a gospel-centered love. Gospel love is informed by God, by Christ, and by the love of Christ. Gospel love is informed by God, by Christ, and the love of Christ. So knowledge informed by that, by the cross, does what Paul says here. It builds up. Love builds up. And this is what you are called to know and to be and to walk in. Also, gospel love with the heartbeat of the cross. So the cross is not absent here. It strengthens. It helps. It holds up brothers and sisters in the Lord. It considers your other brothers and sisters next to you rather than simply stomping on them or just stepping over them. Now here's the irony. You know, this sort of love, it's not lacking in knowledge either. It knows and loves. It conveys the gospel and has a gospel disposition towards others. It considers others above themselves. It's a cross-centered, life-laying-down knowledge. And that's what they were missing. They were missing the most crucial thing. Hence what Paul says here in verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. True knowledge for us as believers loves. Knowing God means loving God and loving others. Because the love of Christ drives them. Because of Him, you love, we love, I love. And so as we consider this then, for ourselves, this crucial ingredient, realize what sort of knowledge you are to have. Realize what sort of knowledge you are to have. Now, this isn't saying don't learn. It's not bad to learn. And if you know me, you know I love to learn. And maybe you do too. And many of you here are very educated. And so I would imagine either you have tolerated education or you enjoy learning as well. 
And so God, he gave us a mind to think and that for his glory. Yet, see that you can have knowledge of something. You can know the truth and destroy others in the process. God is not calling us to a cold, hard, unfilling, unmoved knowledge. He's not calling us to a knowledge that does not consider others. True knowledge, gospel knowledge, will consider others. It will look like Christ. So just consider how God dealt with you in view of the reality that you are a sinner. He did not take up a sledgehammer. I mean, he could have. He knows you're a sinner. He knows what you have done, every single one of us. And he would be right to bring that hammer down in judgment and justice and righteousness. But he didn't do that. He didn't take up a hammer. He took up the cross. God graciously dealt with you. So we're not called to a pufferfish sort of knowledge. So ask of yourself, what has knowledge done to you? Has it been fueled to set aflame the love of Christ in you? Or has it mainly puffed you up such that you go around like a pufferfish poking about and hurting others? Well, this is what Paul is addressing here. And so realize what sort of knowledge you have and also realize what sort of loving people you are to be. Realize what sort of loving people you are to be. This is the key behind what Paul says here and what he'll say ahead. The gospel does not call us to be a people simply with cold, hard facts. We simply go around demanding our own way. Well, I know this, I know that, so I can do what I want. The question is, what about all that knowledge? How is it changing you? How is it moving you? How is it growing you in the love of God in Christ Jesus? How is it moving you to a life that lays itself down for others? Friends, if you think that you know the gospel and you're not laying your life down for others, then you have a lot more to learn. Or as Paul says here, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. You might set forth facts about the Bible. You might have an extensive knowledge of biblical doctrine. Yet are those things taking shape 
in you, believers, in actual, real hands and real feet, love of those around you. And this is the question, and these are the things that Paul is challenging the Corinthians with. You think you know, but you don't know. You're lacking the most crucial thing, the love of God in Christ Jesus. How is that being formed in you? If you leave here and think you have accomplished something by learning more about this chapter and do not apply apply even an iota of it to your life, you have not become more godly. You have not become more like Christ. You are to come and I am to come and we are to come aiming to be like him. This is discipleship. This is the time that the Lord is working and is to work in your heart, in your life, in your mind, that you would be conformed to Christ. And not in some abstract way, but with that person sitting right next to you. And if it's your husband, then the person sitting the other side, or wife, is the person sitting the other side of you. But yes, all of these people the love of Christ in us. And so, having said this and having made this point that he'll bring out even more in next week with verses 7 through 13, having seen what we're really to know, Paul directly addresses what they know and these idols, and he sets forth this truth. What you are to know, and even what I would say we need to be changed by and to glory in, the eternal truth that there is only one God. And this is what the Corinthians knew. The knowledge that was puffing them up, making them think, well, I had the right to do this or to do that, to eat this or to eat that. Now, when Paul, he says this in these verses, don't get him wrong. He's not saying this is bad. As we'll see, this is not bad. This is good. Very good. It's right. It's true. There is only one God, but this knowledge was to be extended or practiced in view of the cross, in view of a gospel love. And so he lays it out here. He lays out the truth behind idols. The truth behind idols. So essentially, as you look out on the world and all the worship within the world, idols aren't real. And this is what he says in verse 4. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, And that there is no God but one. Now we're not there yet, but he says even more than this in chapter 10. So chapter 10, verse 20, he writes, No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. 
I do not want you to be participants with demons. So in one sense, nothing is behind idols. Nothing is behind the worship of idols, meaning there is no God behind the idol. Yet, behind idols, behind false gods, in reality, are demons. But demons aren't God. Instead, the truth is, is that there is only one triune God. There's only one triune God. God is God alone. There is no other. In saying this, Paul's alluding to the well-known passage that David read from a moment ago. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Which, you know, if you were a Jew, you would know exactly this passage. You would have heard it many times, the Shema, which goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And Paul is picking up all of that here in verse 5. In verse 4. And so see that here with verse 4, there is no God but one. And then verse 5, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. So it's from that that he moves on here to speak of the Father and of the Son and absolutely blows us away with these truths. Paul, he is tying the Trinity back to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6. (laughs) The Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God eternally existing in three persons, it is not an innovation of the New Testament. It's simply revealing what has always been throughout all eternity. The world around us worships many so-called gods. Yet Paul is saying there is only one true God. And so he says in verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And so we see the first person of the Trinity God the Father here, and what do we see about him? We see the Father as the grand architect. Now, friends, these are absolutely profound truths. Now, with profound truths, we might be tempted to say, whoa, that's a bit too much for me, wrapping my head around all these things. Yet as we read these statements and statements like these, we need to see they are not talking about abstract things. They are talking about realities. The Father is the grand designer, the one who sovereignly planned and orchestrated all things 
from all eternity. Wrap your mind around that. And from him are all things. And all things exist for him. Just consider that. Ponder the ramifications and the implications of that statement. Everyone and everything that exists is there because of God, this God, the only God. But Paul doesn't stop. We also see the second person of the Trinity here, the Son as the agent of the creation of all things. Verse 6, And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. The Son was the one who initiated the Father's plans. Thus that, we read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, Jesus the Son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together even at this very second. Everything in this room, the earth, the planets, the stars, the universe, is held together by him. He's the creator, not the created. The eternal son of God created everything. It's through whom or through him you came into existence, and it's because of him that you are alive right now. Now, although not directly mentioned here, we also see the third person of the Trinity, which I would argue we do technically see the third person of the Trinity here, but behind the scenes. So with the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, we see him as the revealer. The revealer. He's behind what we're reading right now. He's why we have this letter. Every single word from him. That's why I said we do see him right now, but we don't even have to just say that in passing, we can go back and see what Paul said in chapter 2, right? Chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now in all this, 
and seeing all these things that Paul lays out here. See that amidst the entirety of creation, there is only one creator. This is what we know. And this is what they knew. Yet with this knowledge, we're not to extend out this knowledge like a club. Now, as I set forth these things and as we see these things set forth from the Word of God this morning, it might be that you're feeling that way this morning right now. Like these truths are a club to you. How so? Well, in this way, if you're not worshiping this God, but something else, anything else, this passage might land hard on you. The truth that if you're not worshiping this one triune God, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not different manifestations, not modalism, not Unitarianism, none of that. That's not what Scripture teaches. That means you are worshiping some other God, not this one. The truth that if you're not worshiping this one triune God means you're not worshiping the true God. And hearing that this morning might not be comforting. It might be convicting. The truth that if you don't know God through Christ, it means, and just let this land on you, it means you have never worshipped God in truth. That's the implication of this. So how is that love? The love of God in Christ Jesus is that being displayed right now through me and preaching it like this? How is that love telling you all these things? It's love because it's the truth extended to you as a grace. It's like a surgeon's tool cutting through spiritual deceptions and cutting through lies because they're not good, right? And not stopping there, but turning to show you then the good news as well. While Satan wants to kill you, he wants to steal from you, and he wants to destroy you and your family and everyone around it, Jesus came to give you life, and he came to redeem you, and he came to save you. It's cutting through the false gods of this world. It's telling you the reason you're broken and everything is broken. It's because of this. We have rebelled against this one true God. And so it's cutting through the conflicts right there in your home, there in your job, there in your family. It's cutting through the world and its lies and its wars and its evils. It's even cutting through the conflicts right there in Israel right now. There is a God to whom all will give an account to. 
And this is him. It's exposing modern lies and deceptions. Friends, all religions aren't basically talking about the same God. All religions don't, underline it, don't lead you to God. You are not fine as you are. And there's no such thing as your truth or my truth. There's only the truth. And so these are truths that expose and they cut but they also provide the remedy. Instead of lies and instead of deceptions, it's the good news that through Christ you can know God. And he doesn't say, all right, do this and do this and do this and then you'll be saved. No, Jesus, he says to you and he says to all, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Friend, the truth will set you free. The truth will set your neighbor free, your coworker free, your family members free. They need this Savior. And so this morning, see that God created you to know and to worship him. He created you to know and to worship him. Hear his gentle call amidst this raging world. The creator took on flesh and dwelt among us to demonstrate just how far his love will go. And how far does it go? It goes all the way to the cross. He's not calling you to chains like the philosophies of this world, the religions of this world. He is the one who breaks those chains and he frees the captives. So amidst everything going on in the world right now, with Israel, with Hamas, with Ukraine, with Russia. What message does it need to hear? Friends, this is it. Everyone needs Christ. If Paul were here right now, what would he be preaching? He would be preaching 1 Corinthians 2.2, Jesus Christ and him crucified. So God's not calling us to a prideful, crossless knowledge, but to love as those who know and are known by the one true God. So take up your cross here and now and there and then, and walk in it as his church, and go out and proclaim it also, and ask yourself the question that we started with. 
What direction are you personally heading? May it be this way. The way of the wonderful cross. May your knowledge not miss the most crucial thing. May it be the cross here amidst your brothers and sisters and amidst the world living lives everywhere and anywhere that display the love of God in Christ Jesus. May we do that. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning and we pray that you would help us as we've walked through verse after verse here. Have we learned? Have we gained more knowledge? And then, really, the question is have we simply just gain more knowledge? Or are these things going to affect us? Are these things going to move us? Is the love of God in Christ Jesus going to affect us here in this church with one another, laying down our lives for one another? Is our knowledge of these things, are they going to affect our going out into the world and laying down our lives for the lost, for the broken, for sinners everywhere, anywhere, anyone? That they may, through Christ, know Christ, know God through Christ. And so affect us, Lord, this morning. As we started and we prayed, that you would move us by your word and change us and transform us. May you do that, Lord. And it may mean that someone here this morning needs to come and, and sit at these steps or kneel at these steps and pray and just confess their sins before you, that their knowledge has been an empty knowledge. They've confused knowledge with godliness. So may we respond to your word this morning and may you help us to receive your word or maybe that someone here needs to repent and trust and believe in Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior. Maybe this morning they see that their hope has been in other things. They have been worshiping idols, false things, even demons, but they have never worshiped the one true God. May they this morning repent and believe the gospel. And so we ask, Lord, help us to receive your word, whether it means coming forward here, praying at these steps, praying in our pews, talking to someone here after the service. May, Lord, may we respond. May we wonder as we reflect on these words and as we sing the wonderful cross. May we wonder at the cross and not just stand and wonder but receive and be affected by the cross. So help us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.